Hi everybody, thank you for tuning in again today. I trust and pray that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would speak very deeply and personally to us through his word today. Today we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of First Peter, and we're going to have a look at our memory portion again. Last week we had a look at the salvation history elements of these verses, but I would like us today to particularly look at the topic of suffering that Peter addresses in this passage. You may have already watched today's memory video, but let me read the verses to you again, because the more we hear them, the easier it will be for us to memorize them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The key phrase that I would like us to look at from this passage is found in verse 7, where Peter says, These trials have come so that... And that phrase suggests that in the Christian worldview, trials and suffering and sorrow are not meaningless. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller points out that for centuries, people understood that pain and suffering achieved something. As you know, I've been working my way through his book, and a lot of Keller's thoughts have worked their way into this sermon, and probably into the next few sermons as well. I mention that just in case you ever read the book and think, wow, Tim Keller is quoting my pastor. It's the other way round. But Keller points out how down through all the ages past, men and women understood suffering to have some kind of purpose whether that was to make us better human beings or whether it was to overcome evil, suffering and pain had a purpose. However, our modern world is the very first society to believe that suffering is completely random. 
The atheist Richard Dawkins expressed this view succinctly in his book River Out of Eden, where he wrote, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's no wonder then that our modern world is pitifully ill-equipped to deal with the present pandemic. As we saw last week, it produces a real sense of hopelessness. In these verses, though, Peter assures us that suffering has a purpose. He says, these have come so that, and the words so that suggest purpose and meaning. They don't necessarily suggest understanding. We may not understand pain and suffering, but we can be reassured to know that our pain and suffering are not meaningless. In this passage, Peter tells us some things not everything, but some things about pain and suffering. Peter describes the nature of trials, what they are like, the results of these trials, what they can produce, and our comfort in trials, who it is that helps us. Let's have a look. Firstly, in these verses, Peter tells us about the nature of suffering, what it is like. And Peter tells these Christians three things about the nature of the trials that they are going through. Firstly, these trials are various. Peter says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The Greek word for all kinds is poikiloi. I had the privilege of studying the book of First Peter with the late Dr. Rex Mathy, and he said that we should think of poikikos, where you throw in various vegetables, carrots, onions, broccoli, in with your meat. There are all sorts of different things in poikikos, and there are all sorts of different trials. There is, of course, no link whatsoever between the Afrikaans word for small pot, poiki, and the Greek word poikiloi, which means many-coloured, varied. But nevertheless, the image has stuck with me, and it will probably stick with you too now. It's important to see, though, that the words all kinds of aren't specific, which means then that what Peter says in these verses can apply to any and every kind of suffering. If Peter had specified the exact kind of thing these Christians were suffering, say, for instance, persecution, then we would be tempted to think, ah, yes, but the things he says here don't apply to the situation that I am in at the moment. Peter will go on in this letter to speak about various sufferings, suffering for being a Christian, suffering in our jobs, the suffering that comes from resisting sin, suffering as a minister, even suffering in our marriage. But here in verse 7, Peter has deliberately left the type of trials vague, because what he says about these all kinds of trials apply to us all, no matter the exact situation of suffering in which we find ourselves. 
Secondly, Peter says these trials are serious. When Peter says you may have had to suffer grief, the word used for grief here comes from the same word that is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Matthew tells us he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And I think it's important to see that the Bible recognises the pain of our suffering. As I pointed out last week, the words, in this you greatly rejoice, and the words, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief, are both in the present tense. Peter doesn't say, you used to rejoice in Christ, but now you're in a time of pain and suffering. Don't worry, you will rejoice again. He doesn't say, it's good to see that during these trials and tribulations you are not sad or filled with grief, but you're rejoicing in Jesus. Peter recognises that both joy and sadness are part of the Christian life. And Peter's readers are rejoicing in their salvation even as they are suffering deep grief, hurt and sadness. And thirdly, when it comes to the nature of suffering, Peter says that these trials are normal. Well, it's normal in a sin-filled, broken world. It's not God's original perfect design. But living this side of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind, suffering is a part of the normal Christian life. In fact, but later on in chapter 4, Peter will say, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's so important. Some people have never been told that Christians suffer. In fact, some people have erroneously been told that Christians never do suffer. And so when times of suffering come, they're surprised and even thrown off balance. But Peter says that suffering is normal. It's part of living in a fallen world. Having looked at the nature of these trials, let's have a look at the results of these trials, what they do or what they can do. As we've seen, Peter assures us and reassures us that our sufferings are not purposeless and meaningless and random, but they have a purpose. And Peter goes on to describe six purposes that suffering can have in our lives. Before we go on to examine these, let me make three introductory remarks. Firstly, I just want to acknowledge that for some of you this morning, these reasons may not be helpful at the moment. If you're suffering grief or loss or trauma, it doesn't help to have someone list six reasons why this may be good for you. What I would love to do right now, if I could, would be to come around to your house and have a cup of coffee with you and sit and listen to you and cry with you and pray with you. That's probably what you need most right now. We must be very careful and sensitive in sharing these reasons with people who are going through suffering. At the same time, though, God's word prepares our hearts for suffering and teaches us in our suffering and also speaks to us after times of suffering. And it's important to know these things even if we might not particularly feel them in our hearts today. It's worth writing them down and putting them in our Christian toolbox so that they are there to help us when we need them. Secondly, when we say that suffering has purpose and meaning, 
that doesn't suggest that God is the cause of suffering and evil. What it does mean is that God uses suffering and evil. Now, this is an entire sermon on its own, but God's power is so great that he's able to use evil to defeat itself, a little bit like a good judo fighter uses his opponent's own strength to defeat him. So, for example, in the book of Genesis, we see how Joseph is abused and mistreated for decades. But at the end of the story, he can say to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is so powerful that he can use the evil that men and women do to bring about a good that defeats that evil. And the greatest demonstration of that is on the cross. We look at the cross of Jesus and we see that all that the most evil and unjust act in human history could accomplish was the salvation of the world, the very opposite of what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders and Satan intended to accomplish. Thirdly, before we look at the specifics of what trials can achieve, we need to look at the imagery that Peter uses in this passage. Peter compares suffering grief in all kinds of trials to being in a furnace. This is an extended metaphor that he uses in chapter 1 and again later in chapter 4. He says here, These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And in chapter 4 he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial you are suffering. When I was in primary school up in Johannesburg, I remember a class trip to Gold Reef City, which in those days was a working gold mine. We went down the mine wearing little yellow raincoats and hard hats with lights on top of them. It was very exciting. And at the end of the tour, they took us into the forge and let us watch them pour a gold bar. They explained how the iron ore that we had seen being mined underground had already gone through a crushing process to make it like sand, how sulfuric acid had been added to separate the elements, and how it had been heated in the furnace to 1,600 degrees Celsius to burn off all the other trace metals, which were known as dross. And then we saw them pouring the molten gold into a mould, and even as the gold was poured, flames came up from the mould. The dust and the dirt in the mould were burned off, leaving the refined and purified gold. And that's the picture that Peter uses in relation to our trials. With all that in mind, let's have a look at some of the things that trials can do in us and for us. Firstly, the furnace of our trials burns off the dross. Peter speaks here about our faith being of greater worth than gold, which is refined by fire. You see, mixed in with my faith in God are a whole lot of other desires and commitments. The desire for comfort and pleasure and wealth the commitment to independence and self-determination. And the fire of trials brings those to the surface. 
I certainly can't describe myself as suffering during this pandemic and lockdown. I'm still in good health, and as a family we have an income. But I can say that this outbreak and my enforced stay at home is teaching me a number of things about myself which I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Being forced to stay at home for days and weeks on end, trying to communicate over video call and telephone and WhatsApp, has made me discover my own selfishness, my lack of concern for others, my critical spirit, my pettiness, my desire to look at myself on Zoom meetings rather than others, and a whole lot of other things that I won't get into right now. It's been quite a humbling experience, and yet encouraging, because I know that while I might only now be discovering these things about myself, God has known about them all the time, and he died for those actions and attitudes long before I discovered them. This time of trial brings these things to the surface, and I can recognize them and repent of them, ask God to forgive me, and start to practice the opposite attitudes and actions. Perhaps in this time of trial we've also discovered things that were so important to us that they've actually replaced God in our lives. One of the ways our family is surviving lockdown at the moment is by watching a detective series. I'm not quite sure all that it's teaching us. But a few evenings ago, one of the characters spoke a line which I thought was very instructive. He was speaking to the detectives about his wife and son who'd been killed by a drunk driver, and he said this, My wife was the centre of my life. My son was the reason for my being. Later on in the programme, you realise that actually this man was responsible for the murder of that same drunk driver. Maybe in our case, it's not a relationship that has been at the centre of our lives or the reason for our being, but maybe it's our wealth or our position or our salary or our sense of being in control. And in this time, some of those things have been taken from us and we suddenly discover how important those things were to us, how in fact they had become idols and taken the place that God alone deserves in our lives. Times of trial can remove the dross. Secondly, Peter says that our trials can prove the genuineness of our faith. In verse 7 he says, These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. I'm sure that when you were a child, at one point you would have had a lump of rock that contained some pyrite. You might not have known that it was called pyrite, but it was a lump of rock that had what looked to be gold flakes in it. It looked exactly like gold, but put it in a furnace and the rock and everything in it would have been burnt up to nothing. It wasn't gold. It was pyrite, also known as fool's gold. Sometimes it's difficult to tell whether gold is genuine or not, but the furnace tests the gold. How do I know if my faith in God is genuine? How do I know if I trust God? Well, think of that question in terms of a couple of other areas in life. A young lady, who better remain nameless, studies trigonometry for a week. How does she know if she understands trigonometry? 
Well, at the end of the week, there is a test, and the test determines whether her knowledge and understanding is genuine or not. A car manufacturer designs a new type of airbag for the latest model of their car. How do they know if it works? They subject the airbag to a number of tests. They use a crash test dummy to test the effectiveness of the airbag. How do I know if my faith, my trust, my dependence on God is genuine? I only know this when I'm in a situation where I have to actually trust God. Perhaps my faith has been quite intellectual and abstract and not very heartfelt up until this point. Maybe I've been enjoying the gifts God gives rather than enjoying God himself. It's often only through suffering that my relationship with God becomes more loving and genuine. Which leads very naturally to the third point, which is that trials can bring us closer to God. C.S. Lewis was a writer and theologian who found love late in life when he married the American writer Joy Gresham and then went through the trauma of losing her to cancer. He said this about suffering. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or as a friend of mine says, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. But when trials come, we throw ourselves onto God, often because he is all we have left. As one man put it, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. I love the picture that Peter gives in verse 8. After the fire has removed all the dross, after the dirt and the dust has been burned away, what is left? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Our faith is found to be genuine. When after my finances have gone, after my pension has gone, after my job has gone, after my health has gone, what is left is genuine belief and joy. Fourthly, trials help make us more like Jesus. The pattern for the Christian life is found here in verse 11 and then again in chapter 5. Here Peter speaks about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And in chapter 5 he says, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Jesus, after he suffered, experienced glory. And we too, after we have suffered, experience glory. A little bit later on in chapter 4, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, 
so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Paul speaks about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And what all this suggests then is, as one writer puts it, that just as Jesus learned humanhood from his sufferings, so we learn Christhood from our suffering. Just as Jesus assumed human likeness through suffering, so we can grow into Christ's likeness through suffering if we face it in faith and patience, as he did. In one of her books, Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, describes taking some children to watch a goldsmith refine gold in the ancient tradition. She saw how if the goldsmith wasn't satisfied with the purity of the gold, he would put it back into the furnace again and then pour it out. And eventually Amy asked the man, how do you know when the gold is purified? And the man answered, when I can see my face in it, liquid gold in the crucible, then it's pure. It's possible that through our trials, the face of Jesus is seen in our lives. Number five, our trials can help us to help others. A little later in chapter five, Peter speaks about resisting the devil and standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, their mutual suffering is an encouragement to others. Paul begins his second letter to the Corinthians by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Pastor Rick Warren puts it like this in one of his sermons. He says, The very thing that you're most embarrassed about in your life, the very thing you resent the most, the very experience that you wish had never happened, the very hurt that caused you pain in your life that you resent, either by others or you brought on yourself, it really doesn't matter. But the thing you're most ashamed of and want to hide in the closet is the very thing that God wants to make your greatest ministry if you'll have the courage to be open and be honest. Who could better help the parents of a special needs child than the parents of a special needs child? And who could better help somebody going through the pain of a divorce than someone who has been through a divorce? And who could better help somebody struggling with an addiction than someone who has struggled with an addiction? And who could better help someone who was molested or raped than someone who was molested or raped? God never wastes a hurt, and he will turn it around and use it for good in your ministry if you'll have the courage to be real and honest, because even the painful experiences are used to shape us. Number six, our trials have unseen results. Sometimes, gloriously, we do see, if only in part, some of the results of suffering in this life. I mentioned the story of Johnny Erickson a few weeks ago. As a teenager, Johnny was involved in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. 
She'd been a really sporty teenager, and so to lose the use of her body was incredibly traumatic for her. And yet Johnny admits often that if she hadn't had that accident, she would never have been drawn so close to God or being used by God to the same extent in the lives of others. In a recent interview, she said, God takes no pleasure in my spinal cord injury, but he loves the way he's changing me in it and encouraging others through it. I would not trade this intimacy with God, this sweetness, this nearness, this tenderness, this preciousness of faith come alive in my life. I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking. So sometimes we do see how God uses tragic circumstances, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we will never know this side of eternity, what God has achieved. But we still can be assured that he is achieving something. I think that is hinted at in verse 12, where Peter says, Even angels long to look into these things. The Bible tells us in a couple of places that our lives as human beings are lived out in front of an invisible audience, not just before God, but before spiritual beings. Think, for example, of the book of Job, where the heavenly court observes all that is happening to Job. Or the book of Ephesians, where Paul says, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the early days after her accident, Johnny Erickson spent time in a rehabilitation hospital in Baltimore, and she shared a room with three or four other young women. One of these was a girl called Denise Walters, who'd been a normal, healthy teenager, when out of the blue, she suddenly became weaker and after just a few days became paralyzed from the neck down and then went blind, just like that. It was a rare form of rapid progression multiple sclerosis. She lay motionless in her bed at the rehabilitation hospital, unable to move or see, barely able to talk, wasn't easy to have anything more than just a short conversation with her, and it wasn't long before she had no visitors except her mother. But Denise and her mother were Christians, and every night her mom came in and read the Bible to her and prayed with her dying daughter. And Denise lay there in a lonely hospital bed for eight long years, and then she died. And Denise's death was extremely upsetting to Johnny, who was just beginning to come to terms with her own accident. She was beginning to move from thinking, why did this happen to me, to seeing how God could be glorified through her life. But now she was thrown because here was Denise, who'd loved Christ, never complained, but whose suffering seemed to be completely pointless. Nobody had seen her sufferings and been challenged or encouraged or changed through her perseverance. And Johnny mentioned her doubts and concerns to a friend, who then read to her the passages we've just mentioned. And Johnny suddenly clicked. In her book, she writes, So Denise's life wasn't a waste. Someone was watching her in that lonely hospital room, a great many someones. Angels and demons stood amazed as they watched her uncomplaining and patient spirit rising as a sweet-smelling savour to God. 
And all that simply speaks to me about the fact that there are results of our suffering that we will never know about this side of eternity. Like Job, who never knew that the angels and demons witnessed his suffering or that his story would be written down and encourage fellow sufferers for 3,000 years. We can't predict the ripple effects of things in nature. You may have heard of the butterfly effect, where even the smallest event can set off a whole set of other consequences. And the same is probably true of events in time. Science fiction movies tell us this. Movies like Back to the Future, 1, 2 and 3, the tiniest change in the past would affect everything in the future. Tim Keller says in his book on suffering, If even the effects of a butterfly's flight or the roll of a ball down a hill are too complex to calculate, how much less could any human being look at the tragic, seemingly senseless death of a young person and have any idea of what the effects in history will be. If an all-powerful and all-wise God were directing all of history with its infinite number of interactive events towards good ends, it would be folly to think that we could look at any particular occurrence and from our perspective understand a millionth of what it will bring about. Certainly many evils seem pointless and unnecessary to us, but we're simply not in a position to judge. In this passage, then, Peter assures us and reassures us that our griefs in various trials are not meaningless. These have come so that. Our times of trial burn up the dross, prove the genuineness of our faith, draw us closer to God, allow us to be like Jesus, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, help us to help others, and have unseen results. Suffering changes me into something beautiful. Verse 7 again, These have come so that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Through suffering, our lives are changed to become more like Jesus. We are glorified and on the day that Jesus returns, our glorified lives, in turn, will bring praise, glory, and honor to him. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he writes, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Romans chapter 8, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And in the Old Testament, in the middle of his sufferings, Job says in chapter 23, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Times of trial produce results in this life and in eternity. Finally, as we close, in these verses, Peter tells us something about our comfort and hope in times of trial. 
In verse 11, Peter speaks about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. If we feel as if we're in a furnace today, it's probably helpful to remember that Jesus went through the ultimate furnace. He bore God's judgment on the sin of the world. In Isaiah 43, God promises us, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. But Jesus went through the ultimate fire, and when he did, God was not present. He cried out in pain and bewilderment in the darkness, My God, why have you forsaken me? Peter says that for a little while we may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In other words, our suffering is finite. Jesus' suffering was infinite. He went through the greatest furnace ever, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. And this, to me, is key. We've looked at several reasons for the trials that we experience, and those reasons may help us on an intellectual level. But here is a comfort and hope that speaks to our hearts. Again, to quote Timothy Keller, Yes, we do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue, or why it is so random. But now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes, but it is the half we need. He goes on to mention a book by Anne Foskamp. The book is called One Thousand Gifts. And in the book, Anne Foskamp shares her journey to try and understand the seemingly senseless death of her sister, who was crushed to death by a truck at the age of two. And in the end, she concludes that it's a question of trust. Do we trust God's character? Is he really loving? Is he really just? And she writes this. God gave us Jesus. If we have only one memory, isn't this one enough? Why is this the memory I often most take for granted? If God didn't withhold from us his very own Son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on his cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. In 1787, Pastor John Rippon published a songbook entitled A Selection of Hymns. Most of the hymns were attributed to a particular author, but when it came to hymn number 128, uh, it is anonymous. Nobody knows for certain who the author was, and the author, John Rippon, simply wrote the letter K, but we can be extremely grateful to Kay for penning these words with which we'll close this morning. 
The original tune of this hymn, the one you'll hear on YouTube, for example, is less than inspiring. You really need to sing this to the tune Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Heather mentioned these words in our prayer meeting on Friday, but they were already in my sermon. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trouble to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen.